You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, a bonus episode number 439, recorded on Sunday, September 11th, 2022. I'm Bill Humphrey. Joining me in studio this week is uh, returning host of the show, uh, guest hosting with me today, Nate. Hello, Nate. How are you? Great to be here, Bill. So the reason that we've got Nate in is for two reasons. Uh, One is Rachel is off uh, doing microbiology things at a conference uh, and is not available this week. And the other thing is, as folks have noticed, there was no episode last week uh, and there were some episodes from the bonus feed that were put back out. And that was because, as I said, I was out of the country. And specifically, I was in Cuba. I was on a delegation in Cuba. So that's what Nate and I are going to talk about today uh, was my trip to Cuba and that sort of whole experience. So, uh, Nate, thanks so much for helping me out with this, uh, just kind of chit-chatting about what my experiences were, which I thought uh, many of our listeners would find interesting. I guess I'm not sure where to begin on this. Uh, I guess I can just say like this was a delegation trip. Uh, I was one of uh, a number of elected officials. There were also activists on this. These were um, local uh, municipal focused people. We went on a delegation organized by uh, the group called Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. Uh, This dates back to the era of the... uh, Americans that were trying to resist the funding of the Contras and so forth in Central America. They are a U.S.-based organization that specifically focuses on generally three countries where U.S. uh, foreign policy is traditionally in the past several decades most uh, visibly felt uh, and damaging. Uh, Those are Colombia, Honduras, and Cuba. So Colombia and Honduras, of course, recently just had those very historic elections uh, where uh, more left-leaning people were brought into power uh, after years and years of domination by the U.S. State Department and armed forces. Uh, And then Cuba, of course, has been under a uh, blockade economically uh, and sometimes militarily since uh, pretty much uh, not that far into the Cuban Revolution that uh, took power at the beginning of 1959. And so uh, there's obviously been a left-wing government in power there that whole time, but it has been uh, under very severe constraints by the U.S. And so the organization advocates for basically uh, the idea that the blockade should be lifted, so they want to bring people to see why that's the case, and then also uh, in terms of what the government should be in Cuba— They don't take a position on that. They say that's an internal matter that should be sorted out by the Cuban people. Uh, And there are other groups that organize different delegations to, you know, these countries as well. Um, But I guess in in many cases, those organizations are advocating for something like either regime change or like development uh, focus rather than just like ending uh, the the negatives of the U.S. uh, foreign policy. Uh, as the primary objective there, because, uh, and this was, I think, very obvious on this trip to Cuba, uh, who knows what happens if the U.S. walks away from some of these negative foreign policies in terms of what happens next, but what we do know is then they would at least have a shot to decide what they wanted to do. So um, I guess we'll talk about uh, kind of the process of going there and the various things that I went to. Um, I was telling Nate a little bit about this yesterday. It is kind of a process to go there, even though it's a little bit uh, 
more relaxed than it had been. You don't have to fly to Canada anymore. Yeah, um, at least if you get one of the approved licenses from the State Department to go on this. Um, we were going under the Support for the Cuban People license. Now, that was an uh, interesting one because what they really mean by that is they're expecting you to go to Cuba and support the people against the government. There's stuff about like a rapid, peaceful transition to democracy and stuff like that. Um, but the, the main gist of it is that you're not meeting with government people. You're not going to government-owned businesses. You are meeting with, uh, well, civil servants who technically work for the government but aren't like party officials or anything, and uh, civil society members and stuff like that. And you're, you know, getting to talk to folks and hear uh, not only what they do and what life is like there and what the effects of the blockade are, but also just like their kind of take on the, you know, what's going on in, in the situation. And I do think that people were pretty forthright with us um, for the most part about like if they thought something was going well or they thought something wasn't going well, they were pretty candid about that. Um, and obviously, I think if you're... <laughs> A reasonably uh, intelligent and thoughtful person, you can also like read between the lines sometimes and figure out, um, you know, if you're not getting the full story necessarily. But again, I my impression was that people were like being pretty open about it. Um, and we did t uh, have a lot of emphasis on this trip about w all the ways that the U.S. has historically and still currently uh, interferes uh, with things down there um, such that it's you can't really say, oh, this is the fault of the government per se, because it's also the fault of uh, the U.S. Um, so, yeah, so he took uh, flights down there. Uh, you can fly out of the U.S. now multiple times a day on various different airlines. That's a change that came in under the Obama years. But then a lot of other restrictions got tightened again under Trump. A lot of the people on the plane, I noticed, were like, Cuban exile community types who were bringing down like suitcases full of goods to sell on the black market, which was like, not like great to see and you didn't feel great about those guys necessarily but okay i guess they're allowed to do that anyway so we went down there and then uh we met up as a group uh, some of us from the boston area some of us from minneapolis and we uh met up and we went out to this uh like hotel thing on the first night well first we went to the uh plaza of the revolution basically the revolution square that's the one that you've, you've probably seen pictures of that has like the huge like metal sculpture things of che and cienfuegos on the walls there of these two buildings but you know you kind of look around you see a giant statue of jose marti who is this uh pre-revolutionary cuban figure from the late 19th century who had lived in the united states for a while he is the national poet basically very influential died during the fight against spain for independence um, and I actually was kind of surprised how much Jose Marti stuff there is in the country. Um, there's really not that much stuff about Fidel Castro, who has now passed away um, visibly, but there is Jose Marti stuff everywhere, and there's stuff for Che and Cienfuegos. Well, I think what's interesting about the Marti respect and reverence that, that you've talked about is that it just shows that U.S.-Cuban relations have gone on much further back in history than just, you know, everything that happened with the revolution and the subsequent U.S. embargo and everything like that. It really shows that, and we were talking a little about this earlier, about uh, U.S. foreign policy trying to annex Cuba at one point, going back to the Franklin Pierce days. Um, and so, you know, it just shows there's a long, complicated history here. Obviously, we saw the, uh, the war, the U.S.-Spanish War, 1898, and then how Cuba played into that, and then, of course, the Philippines and everything. So... 
point being, there's a lot of history here, and it sounds like you were able to get some interesting perspective there. Absolutely. So, you know, after uh, that first night of kind of seeing a few of the like really super touristy uh, scenes, the the like the the landmarks and stuff going up to a hotel rooftop, the next morning they said, okay, lecture time. We're going to talk uh, with a Cuban history professor about Cuban American relations. And just as you said, Nate, the the main focus there was actually not on the period during and after the revolution uh, takes power at the beginning of 1959. It's a century earlier, basically, right? Talking about uh, the relationship between the U.S. Uh, and Cuba under Spanish rule, the agricultural relationships, the slavery component, so forth. Um, my recommended reading on that in terms of outside reading um, from the U.S. perspective is actually the book by Matt Carp from a few years ago, This Vast Southern Empire. That's one that talks about the pre-Civil War foreign policy and military policy of the United States when it was controlled by Southerners and how much emphasis there was on the eventual uh, presumed to be inevitable annexation of uh, Cuba and uh, the continuation of slavery um, in, in the, you know, under that system. And Cuba does end up, in fact, being the next to last to abolish uh, slavery. This is under Spanish control again, to emphasize that. Um, but Brazil was the last, but before that was Cuba. And another sort of foundational part, but even in the pre-Jose Marti era, uh, which was like the 1880s, 1890s, the, the uh, big sort of foundational moment for Cuba is in 1869, a few years after the Civil War, when this one pro-Cuban independence uh, plantation owner frees all of his slaves and says, the, the new independent Cuba that we're going to be fighting for is going to be a multiracial uh, republic where everyone can participate. Um, and, you know, he invited his slaves to join in that struggle for independence. Partly that's a pragmatic decision because there's so many slaves in Cuba uh, and it's a plantation economy and they weren't going to be able to have independence or maintain local rule uh, without uh, freeing the slaves and inviting them into that project. But that becomes another sort of foundational component uh, in the story of Cuba and the, and the Cuban identity, which is then heavily crystallized by the writings of Jose Marti. Um, so we talked a lot about the like repeated attempts to uh, by the U.S. to uh, possibly buy or annex Cuba. Spain was even considering selling it uh, at the beginning of the Spanish-American War, but we decided that it was more important to have a war with them. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Cubans ostensibly liberated uh, by American help, but then put right into what they call uh, the neo-colonial period there, which is under the Americans, where technically they were independent, but really they were repeatedly being reinvaded by the U.S. Marines uh, or, you know, governments being toppled by the U.S. ambassador if they didn't do what they were, uh, quote unquote, supposed to do. And that was even enshrined in the Platt Amendment to the Cuban Constitution that the U.S. had the right to intervene basically at any opportunity. Uh, the U.S. also obviously takes Guantanamo Bay as a giant military base, which they continue to have to this day. And uh, it was emphasized to us this was not just for the torture camp that follows 9-11, but also uh, just the military base to be able to launch all kinds of other military operations all over the Caribbean uh, and Central America and so forth. And this is something that I think we've done episodes on before. Um, so this was like a good uh, kind of reminder of the basic details of uh, kind of the 
uh, Monroe Doctrine era and then the neo-colonial era uh, of U.S. domination of Cuba. And this then becomes this significant factor when uh, Castro successfully stages his revolution over the course of 1958 and takes power in January 1959 uh, is that there's a lot of nationalist resistance, regardless of ideology, uh, to U.S. domination, and that the U.S. by that point had, and this had actually started even before Spanish uh, had left, uh, was U.S. companies buying up huge amounts of like sugar plantations and things like that, coffee plantations in Cuba. And so then the revolution, as was the case in many other Latin American countries, uh, again, it's a nationalist matter rather than an ideological matter at that point, uh, decides they're going to do land reform because there's too few companies or individuals uh, and mostly outside the country that own this land. And um, this, I think, is also an interesting like point is that the revolution was not, and this was repeatedly emphasized to us as well, the revolution was not uh, socialist in declaration or intent or anything when it took power. That only happens at the moment that the Bay of Pigs invasion begins. Uh, over two years later. So there is that initial period of time when uh, Cuba is uh, trying to come to some sort of settlement with the United States. There were offers to buy out these plantations and businesses. They were going to offer, uh, you know, to pay out government bonds and things like that. And the Eisenhower administration just flatly said, no, this is where you get the roots of things like the embargo, uh, as it's called in the United States. The Cubans call it the blockade or el bloqueo. But in the U.S., it's referred to as the embargo on the basis that, oh, well, they owe us compensation. And this was because Eisenhower said that the money had to be uh, paid in full immediately in, in dollars, as opposed to like in government bonds over a 10-year period or something like that. Um, so this initially is just this very like basic nationalist Latin American revolution that's pretty straightforward. Nothing uh, particularly eventful. This follows the uh, immediately follows the uh, Batista second uh, period uh, in the 1950s when uh, the U.S. backed Batista in in close conjunction with uh, the organized crime in the United States uh, is running this sort of ruthless uh, corruption machine uh, in Cuba that. Uh, leaves, at least according to Cuban accounts, 20,000 people dead. So then one of the other big controversies is when the revolution happens, they then put 600 of these people on trial for specific crimes. They were given trials for, uh, you know, you ordered this torture, or you per personally committed this massacre, things like that. And this was very poorly received by the U.S. media, which called this, you know, like, you know, authoritarian Soviet show trials, that kind of thing. Um, even though, th from their point of view, they were uh, preventing some very bad people from coming back to power. Um, so that was the kind of the gist of the uh, lecture that we heard. Um, and, and we also, it was emphasized again that Fidel Castro repeatedly tried to normalize relations with the U.S., made many attempts through back-channel diplomacy, was constantly rebuffed, and so on. Uh, and so that was uh, what we heard. Uh, and we heard also a little bit about, like, how things had eased somewhat under Obama, although the policy was still regime change. Just the Obama strategy, which I guess we'll see if it works, but the Obama strategy was essentially let's continue promoting openness and market reforms and then the communist revolution will collapse basically on its own. Um, and then it was re-tightened significantly under Trump. So when I got there, 
conditions were very, very bad. They were the worst they had been probably since 1992 when the Soviet Union collapsed and the um, the block uh, was gone that Cuba had been trading with. And so the this, this is the situation in Cuba when I get there. They had recently had a fire that had knocked out a significant amount of their uh, fuel capacity uh, for their power on the island. So there was widespread fuel rationing with no real uh, and power rationing with no real end in sight on that. They had just started revaluing the currency. That was partly a reflection of the economic conditions due to the pandemic. Uh, Cuba, in order to get uh, hard cash currency that they can use to buy things on the global market, around sanctions uh, and and blockade from the U.S. They need a lot of tourist dollars. This has also been controversial because it means they're investing a lot in tourist hotels and infrastructure instead of some of the things they had been investing in. And it's by necessity, they need to bring in that cash in order to pay for everything else. They're having trouble because in many cases, the pandemic, uh, even now, the it's like 50% of what it had been in terms of tourists coming in and bringing in that money. Um, the blockade, although only enforced by the United States at this point, does have rules like 10% ownership in any company means they can't participate. Uh, U.S.-related or owned ports can't be used for uh, even emergency repairs for shipments going to Cuba and so forth. So even though Cuba can buy from other countries, they have to travel very long distances with very expensive shipping, and everything just sort of adds up. There's also a lot of like... If you have machine parts that are broken, like on your truck or your bus, uh, you're not going to have that. Your water pump breaks, you're not going to have that. Uh, everything is gradually breaking down under the weight of these uh, blockades and sanctions, and that has very dire consequences for the Cuban people who are living there. And, uh, you know, it's sure there are going to be some people that blame the government for that, but in many cases, they, I think, correctly blame the United States for that. And that's a very public thing. You can ask a lot of people there and they'll say, yeah, the blockade is the reason that we don't have these things, these basic supplies, basic machine parts. We can't repair and build factories and so forth. So, yeah. Driving the old 1950s cars. Do you see any of those? I did see some of those, although I also noticed a lot of Korean cars, which was interesting, like more recent Korean cars. So that, again, shows you that, like, even in... These are South Korean cars, right? They're like... Yeah, they're even, not North Korea. Right. Even, even with, like, South Korea, like a very close U.S. ally and security partner, even they are not, like, following this blockade. So it really is the U.S. that is just, like, keeping the boot on the neck here. And it hasn't worked so far... Maybe it will, but I don't think it will. Um, so in terms of this objective of regime change, which is, I think, a bad objective to begin with, but also that's their business. They can sort that out for themselves. You got to get this blockade out of there because this is really uh, hurting quite a lot of people. Um, and although they've made significant investments, as we'll talk about, in certain areas like um, vaccine development and things like that on the island, which does take a lot of resources, they also don't have a lot of... Uh, Things like, for example, if a child gets cancer or something like that, and that's not the government's fault. That's the fault of the blockade with the U.S. They can't get those supplies and medicines that they need. And at that point, you're just kind of hoping and praying that something, you know, intervenes to relieve this situation and, and save this child. That There's a human cost in Cuba. And as we'll talk about, also, there's a human cost in other countries as a result of the blockade on Cuba. Um, but th this is a horrific anti-humanitarian policy that is not achieving its policy goals, even if those were good goals, which I don't think they are. Um, but they're, you know, 
they they have had to really like ration a lot of resources to people uh, and they're you know that is becoming harder and harder with each passing year as these conditions mount up um, because everything just kind of compounds on on all these other problems but if you took away the blockade a lot of these problems would be relieved and people would be a lot better off so I'm just looking at your itinerary here, Bill. It looks like you went to a family doctor's office to learn a bit about the Cuban healthcare system. Yeah, we'll so talk that, a bit about that. That's probably one of the more famous things that people have heard about in the U.S., and that was kind of fascinating to go to that. So they have these, they they do have like actual hospitals if if someone gets like really really sick or has some huge injury or something like that, right? And you'll go to the hospital if it's that kind of thing. But if it's something more minor or if it's just a basic checkup they have a family clinic system. It's based in your neighborhood. Uh, they have a group of doctors. Some of them are just basic doctors. Some of them are specialists, like they'll have like a mental health specialist or they'll have a specialist in some other field. And they all work together as a team. They keep track of every single person in that neighborhood, in that geographical area they've been assigned. Usually you're going to get somewhere in the vicinity of like 800 households, something like that, um, that would be assigned to a particular clinic. And they make sure that everyone is getting at least one checkup a year. Some people get multiple checkups if they're slotted into a category of being a particularly higher risk or something like that. Um, or even just like, you know, uh, childbearing age, you get this amount of checkups. If you're a senior citizen, you get this amount of checkups, that kind of thing. And they confer with each other on the team as well to make sure that they're like kind of keeping track of how these different, uh, you know, ailments or conditions you might have are, are uh uh, affecting each other so they can get you the the care that you need. Uh, and, you know, they, they can kind of keep an eye on people, um, their, their like family health situation to the point of like, they write down like, oh, the, this family has a pet dog and maybe that's exacerbating the allergies that this kid is reporting, like things like that. They can kind of just keep, keep a good sense of that. And what was also really important that was emphasized to us was you, you've probably heard about the brigades of doctors that go overseas. Now, in some cases, those are through contractual agreements. So they'll go to someplace like rural Mexico where Mexican doctors are like, eh, I'd really rather not work there. I'd rather work in the city or something. And they'll go provide a clinic similar to there. And in exchange, the government of Mexico will send back some resources that Cuba really needs, right? It's a quid pro quo uh, exchange. But you've also probably heard about the emergency brigades. These are not based on contract and they are like a basically a donation that is being made to that country. It's a disaster zone type of thing, whether it's a hurricane or an earthquake, something like that. Cuba will send these doctors. They will pay for them. The government pays for them to go over there. They pay for their room and board and everything. They've been sent all over the world, places like Iran. They even offered to send them uh, for both 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, and the U.S. government refused that help. Uh, but also, this is, this is the really key point. When they are on those volunteer missions for emergency situations, they are doing that... Uh, they are not surplus doctors. They are doing that out of their national pool of doctors and resources uh, down to that neighborhood level. That means that if someone from your clinic goes overseas on one of these uh, doctor brigades, you have to cover their shifts. And this brought to my mind some really interesting, thought-provoking points. We hear a lot of discussion, at least on like the online left, about concepts like what is solidarity, what is mutual aid, these kind of things. And the point that they made to us was that solidarity has a very real component that is not just 
sympathy or pity. You're not just saying, oh, I stand with you. I feel bad for you. Uh, you're also not just like charitably donating something that you have extra of. Mutual aid in their conception, and I think this is a valid way of defining it, and, and I think that even if you look at something like how the U.S. defines things like mutual aid between fire departments, right, where they loan each other fire trucks during a crisis, it is a situation where you are putting yourself at some risk by giving up something that you needed in order to help someone else. The phrase that we heard a lot there through our translator was, we share what we have, right? So the idea here is not, oh, we're training a whole bunch of extra doctors more than we need and then sending them overseas. It's actually, we, d we are going to give you one of the doctors that we needed at home and we're going to have people cover their shift, but you need that doctor more right now. And we hope that you will also be able to help us in our hour of need, but it's not an explicit quid pro quo. And I think that's an important point, especially compared to like the U.S. left. When we have people, you know, who are from more affluent suburban backgrounds talking about, oh, we're doing mutual aid and mutual aid is so important and we'll help each other because the government isn't helping each other. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not actually what mutual aid is. That's charity. Um, somebody on the trip uh, described it to me as you reinvented Catholic charity, but made it secular and, and put some like socialist labeling on it. So I think that's an important point is that if you're going to be in solidarity, if you're going to provide mutual aid and so forth, that has to come at some sort of cost to you that you're giving up something. Uh, and that was, I thought, an interesting uh, point as well. So similar to this, you also went to the Molecular Immunology Immunology Center to talk about the production of vaccines because we saw yeah. the uh, the Cubans created a COVID vaccine. Is that correct? Or yeah, multiple so ones? We didn't, yeah, so I'll talk about that. We didn't actually end up going to the center. Okay. Uh, we had someone come to talk to us, um, partly because <laughs> everything was kind of starting to shut down and we didn't know when there was going to be like power outages or, right. you know, people like transportation options were always a little bit up in the air. Uh, we were being, uh, which is very unusual, obviously, for Cubans, we were being taken around on an air-conditioned private tour bus that belonged to the seminary that we were staying at, the Martin Luther King Jr. Center. But again, that is not a typical experience. I did end up riding the bus one night, uh, like the actual transit bus, and that kind of comes whenever they have one. They don't have a lot of them because of the parts shortages, and it's subsidized, so people are only paying two pesos to get on, which is, you know, a couple of cents, basically. And uh, then you're riding, like, completely packed in, like, sardines, uh, and just kind of hoping for the best. Uh, but we did hear from uh, Ricardo Perez of the Molecular Immunology Center. Uh, he's sp specifically their foreign affairs director, which means he's the one that like goes around trying to uh, sign deals with partnerships for various other um, entities around the world. This is fascinating. Um, you know, I, I want to like definitely talk more with Rachel about this specifically because of her background in uh, molecular biology. Um, but there is a state company uh, in Cuba. Well, it's a holding company that has 35 companies under its umbrella that uh, work in biotech. That's something that um, Castro, uh, Fidel Castro had decided back in, you know, the early period of the revolution, but especially a couple decades in that. Cuba was having a lot of trouble getting access to certain medicines and vaccines, especially things that were sort of like tropical poor people diseases, so so to speak. Um, the U.S. wasn't really that interested in the private sector in developing these things, and they weren't going to have access to it anyway because of the blockade. So Cuba began developing this biotech sector, which is 
they were very open about this, very, very expensive to maintain, um, especially under blockade conditions, because you cannot have those facilities shut down for any reason, right? They, if, the, if the power goes out there, now you're in serious trouble because things are, that are supposed to be kept at a certain temperature are not, and so on and so forth. So this, this requires a huge amount of investment. Um, but when it came to the COVID situation, they were able to develop multiple vaccines uh, for themselves and then begin sharing those or in some cases trading those uh, to other parts of the world, especially other poor countries. And so we got to hear all about the process of how they developed those Um they emphasized that they didn't work alone on that. That was something I had wondered about um, because the U.S. media tends to just sort of ignore any of the work that the Cuban biotech sector is doing um, and pretends it's not happening. But they are actually working with like very well-regarded laboratories and research teams all over the world. Um, I think Finland was one country that was mentioned, and there were a bunch of other ones as well. And during the Obama years, there was actually a brief period where they had started signing deals with companies in the United States in places like Massachusetts or research universities in Minnesota and so forth. Um, these were the ones that were emphasized to us just because that's where the delegates were from on this particular trip. But uh, they that got like basically rolled back under Trump. And the, their whole approach to how they dealt with COVID was completely different from how the United States dealt with it. First of all, they didn't like go on TV constantly lying to everyone about it. They were very transparent about like, Here's the situation. Here's the latest statistics. Here's what you need to do to keep safe. This is what we're working on. Uh, you know, here's the problems that we're encountering, that kind of thing. Uh, at one point, very early on, they basically put, went on state TV and said, here's, the, here's how to make a cloth mask that will at least reduce your transmission risk. If you have any materials that you can recycle into cloth masks, please start doing that. And a lot of people were able to do sort of community aid networks with each other, uh, which was something that we also uh, heard about at one of the, the um, community organizations that we visited. Um, but they said that by the end of this whole process of developing these vaccines, um, people like would recognize on the street the scientists who were working on these teams developing these vaccines, which was such a contrast from the U.S. where like people knew who Fauci was, but that was basically it. And he wasn't like designing the vaccine himself. He wasn't explaining like, oh, here's how it's going to work. Here's our concept. Whereas they were going on TV in Cuba and saying like, okay, we've taken the tetanus vaccine and we've modified it in this way to work in this way. Uh, and this is going to be for one population. Uh, we've taken the hepatitis vaccine and we've modified it in this way and it's going to work for this population. And that was something you asked me about a few mo moments ago, which was, did they have one vaccine or multiple vaccines? Well, they actually had multiple vaccines because the U.S. basically didn't really tell anyone how they were doing this. Like it wasn't publicly like on TV every night explaining how they were doing it. But they tried to do a one size fits all vaccine for the most part, which then meant, as we all know, really long delays in terms of getting it approved for like uh, children under 18 and then children under 12 and so forth. Um, by contrast, in Cuba, they were able to get when they started doing the rollout immediately to about 90% vaccination, not only because there was such a high level of trust, obviously there were also mandates, uh, but you know, 90, basically if you exclude ineligible populations like people under the age of two, you got to about 100%. Almost everyone was like, yes, we understand what this vaccine is. We understand how it will help us. We trust you. And uh, they had different vaccines for different populations. So there were ones that were specific for seniors. There were ones that were specific for children and so forth. So that was, I think, a really impressive thing. And the, the lecture there really just was 
um, took a lot of the politics out of it. I mean, I hate to use that phrase, um, but it was really focused on science. And to the extent that there was a political discussion there, it was basically like, hey, the U.S. could be benefiting from some of these technologies. They've got Alzheimer's and Parkinson's drugs in trials. They've got cancer vaccines uh, that are under development and being tested now, which um, I don't, as far as I understood, wouldn't prevent cancer. But like if you detected early stage cancer, it would help combat the cancer cells from growing. So you would get people a lot longer and better quality of life. Um, they are also working on, uh, they have a very promising drug that they've been developing that would reduce significantly amputations in diabetics. That's something that Poor people in the United States would benefit from enormously, and they are providing this, you know, basically at cost once it's developed, as opposed to, you know, the U.S. pharmaceutical companies where they want to make huge returns on each unit sold of everything, and they have giant advertising campaigns. There's no advertising in Cuba. Then again, there's no pharmaceutical advertising in almost any country in the world except the United States and I think maybe New Zealand. And it's, uh, this is something where, this is a concrete example where the blockade and the sanctions regime does not just hurt the Cuban people. It's a humanitarian disaster for ordinary people in the United States as well. There's a lot of poor Americans that would benefit from this kind of thing. And it's not, again, it's not just the Cuban biotech uh, that is involved in this. It's also a matter of like, they have partnerships with research teams all over the world. They sign very ironclad contracts, apparently, about data sharing and sharing a lot of this information publicly so they can speed up the process. That's one reason they were able to develop the COVID vaccine relatively quickly in Cuba. Um, they had like ones that they were ready to start preliminary testing on within just, you know, a matter of weeks or months. And that's true everywhere else in the world, too. But there's just an openness that was, I think, quite a bit different. Um, and so that was a, a really fascinating lecture. As I said, I'm going to want to like research that more, find out if there's, you know, been things in peer reviewed publications that raise questions about some of the stuff we were hearing. But generally, I think it's been pretty widely regarded. And I'm sure Rachel, when she gets back, will have some thoughts and input on that. Um, but they do, uh, you know, as I said, provide a lot of these vaccines uh, around the, you know, the Caribbean and African countries and other countries that are under U.S. sanctions and so forth to try to, like, help people survive these basic things like, you know, meningitis was the first one that they had developed a vaccine for uh, in Cuba. And they, you know, got to a very high vaccination rate there and managed to, you know, just about eradicate that. Meanwhile, the United States, I guess, is having a polio outbreak. That's uh, something we've long eradicated. Uh, yes. And uh, I heard that was starting up as I was heading out of the country and just sort of a a mind-boggling thing to think about. Things do not feel like they're trending in a good direction in this country, even if you don't think things are trending in a good direction in Cuba either. Um, but again, when you've got a product that is apparently has a 75% reduction on the amputation needs in diabetics, let's get that into the U.S. Come on. That's not... I mean, this is this is literally cutting off our own foot to achieve these foreign policy goals that we've been trying to do and we meaning the u.s government for decades and have not actually achieved now another place that you went uh was the infamous bay of pigs area um in the sort of a neighboring Pro providence um and then there was a natural reserve of wetlands around there you sort of did a, a homestay um in the area and then uh were introduced to some 
various aspects of the wildlife and things like that. So if maybe you want to talk a little bit about that, some of the crocodiles that you encountered. Yeah, under the U.S. sanctions regime, one of the places you're allowed to stay, uh, as I said, when we were in Havana, we were staying at the Martin Luther King Center, and that's sort of a seminary-type uh, institution. So that's like a civil society dormitory thing. Um, but you can also stay under U.S. sanctions rules in Airbnbs. Now, I hadn't even realized until shortly before this trip that Airbnb was operating in Cuba. And it's a very weird setup where... They have basically you have to have a U.S. or European partner uh, that is also like co-owning or running this facility with you. Um, but the other sort of big restriction there, which is interesting, is that in Cuba, you are by law only allowed to own two homes. So you can have a city home and you can have a beachfront or countryside home, but you can't have more. That limits the extent to which these Airbnb things can proliferate. So then what we saw when we went to the Bay of Pigs and stayed in one of these like Airbnb type places uh, was that basically a bunch of neighbors will get together and kind of unofficially form like a cooperative thing. So if you have a group like ours that's sizable coming in, they'll all say, okay, you're in this building, you're in this building, you're in this building, and so forth. They'll all work together. They all benefit from that sort of uh, tourism revenue and so forth. Although again, this was a research and learning trip. Um, we learned about this coastal wetlands preservation area that exists in the Bay of Pigs area. We got to go to um, this sort of, it's a very similar ecology to the Everglades. So if you've ever been to the Everglades, you know that mm -hmm. they have these like, um, kind of, uh, eroded tubes, like sinkhole type things that are filled with water and have like, you know, tropical fish swimming around and stuff. So we got to go swimming on that one day. Um, they had a crocodile, uh, breeding facility that we got to tour that is focused on the Cuban crocodile, which is a freshwater crocodile that is being threatened by climate change as the sea level rises and these wetlands areas get infiltrated by more and more saltwater. They're in competition with the saltwater crocodiles. Uh, so we learned a lot about like kind of the local ecology. Um, and the guy that was speaking to us on this, uh, the ecologist that was brought in from uh, one of these local um, scientific research uh, establishments, his wife was the person that was running the like Airbnb type, uh, you know, a beachfront facility thing that we were staying at. Although again, we weren't really like there to like hang out at the beach or whatever. Um, but we learned a lot about this, you know, the, the like current ecology. We learned about how much the like Spanish and U.S. companies had sort of stripped out tons of uh, timber and, uh, you know, promoted like very... Um, unsustainable charcoal practices and so forth. And now it's, the area is heavily dependent on tourist economy, and that has been damaged significantly by uh, the pandemic. And we also did, of course, go to the Bay of Pigs uh, Invasion Museum. Um, we went to a whole bunch of museums on this trip, which was really interesting. Uh, we also went to the Museum of the Denunciation, which is a whole thing on like all of the CIA terrorist attacks in Cuba, the uh, arson attacks burning down sugar plantations, the 600 and some odd attempts on Fidel Castro's life and so forth. That was in Havana. Um, but the, going to the Bay of Pigs and seeing the Bay of Pigs Invasion Museum was uh, a pretty powerful experience um, and certainly uh, not one that I'm going to forget anytime soon. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating uh, side excursion outside of Havana. Um, and it is interesting as well the extent to which they have not been able to upgrade the infrastructure in this country in many ways. So 
a relatively short distance does take you like three hours to get there and you have to go through security checkpoints because of course, as I think should be obvious from what we've been talking about, Cuba has been in an undeclared defensive war against the United States since pretty much like 1960, uh, since the the land reform law in the beginning of 1960. And um, this, this forces them to take various security measures that might otherwise go away. I don't know for sure if they would, but the idea that this is like, you know, a totalitarian oppressive regime that is, you know, got police all over the place and everything, just saying that in isolation without talking about the fact that there is this huge campaign of violence and terrorism from the United States and the CIA really kind of misstates the situation and the and the conditions. And I think that's important to emphasize as well. Um, and it was not a particularly significant hassle. I mean, the bus driver like had a pass to get through and so forth. So they just kind of keep track when you're cro- crossing the province lines that they kind of know where you are. Uh, and again, that that dates back to, uh, as we saw at the Museum of the Denunciation, a really real history of, of pretty significant violence. We also heard about that at the uh, Museum of the Literacy campaign. Uh, this was uh, declared in the beginning of 1961. The objective was to end literacy, illiteracy in Cuba within the span of a year. They managed to accomplish that goal in less than a year. They sent children, in many cases, out to educate people, uh, especially in the countryside. So you got a, a high 20% illiteracy rate down to about 3% over the course of the year. Um, in some cases you had kids as young as 10, many of them were 14 year olds. The idea here was this is how to break down a national scale problem, uh, is kids know how to read. Let's teach, let's have them go teach how to read. They got little uniforms. They got lanterns that were donated by the people's Republic of China so that they could be teaching people how to read after, you know, they were done, uh, working in the fields during the day. Uh, and they went out there all over the countryside and, while they were very, very well received by the people they were teaching, the CIA backed groups of bandits in the mountains and the countryside to go and literally attack, murder, torture some of these actual children in an effort to discourage parents from allowing their children to participate in this program for that year. And that kind of horrific thing helps go a long way to accounting for why you have to still have a certain level of kind of militarization and policing uh, in Cuba that is uh, like politically aimed and aimed at surveillance and monitoring. It's because of that uh, particular history. And you can say, well, that was a long time ago, except that uh, there were, uh, you know, attempts within about 20 years or so of now. Um, it's it's kind of died down since then. Um, but there's, there's definitely still plenty of uh, covert activities. Um, the CIA, uh, it's very well known, and, and USAID and the State Department and so forth, funding various opposition groups and dissidents and things like that. Um, the protests last year, although somewhat grounded in some real grievances, were overwhelmingly a concerted effort uh, launched by the U.S. government. That's pretty obvious. Um, it was not exactly a spontaneous uprising in response to a particular thing. The hashtag um, was trending hard for a couple of days. Yeah, and, and a lot of the tweets coming from places in like Virginia and stuff like that. And you're just like, all right, that's not like a real thing. And they had a they had a song ready to go, like an official anthem and right, stuff. Yeah. Like, come on, like you know. So and they, you know, even under the Obama years, they were doing stuff like the fake social media websites and stuff. The various like you know, honeypot schemes like sponsoring and sponsoring like hip hop artists. And Absolutely. Stuff. Yeah. Like this is all like that's relatively well-known stuff that's just happened within the last several years, even in the post Fidel era, some of this stuff was happening. And 
I think you can't really look at that and separate that from a certain level of ambient paranoia by the government. Uh, and that, again, speaks to the point that, like, ending the undeclared war by the U.S., ending the blockade, let's see what happens after we do that in terms of how the government responds. I would guess there would be a lot more openness, but that's just my speculation. I'm um, just wondering about a few more things. You went to a couple art museums. Maybe talk a little about those. The Factory of Cuban Art. Um as well as a couple other ones I'm looking here. The uh, Casa de Africa Museum. Yeah, so I'll talk briefly about the Casa de Africa Museum, and then I'll talk about some of the art stuff. So Casa de Africa was a is an African-focused history museum. It's focused on the Afro-Cuban experience and culture and history. Uh, this is a very, very heavily uh, black or mixed-race country Um in some ways had a lot of parallels to the experience of Haiti, but in obviously in other ways, some very big differences. Um, as I talked about earlier, the Cuban like independence movement is inherently tied up in the idea of a mixed race, cross racial uh, coalition for an independent identity. You had these brutal sugar plantations. We actually talked about that on this uh, podcast before uh, with the um, sugar trusts and so forth. And, Eventually, you end up with the, you know, millions and millions of Afro-Cubans uh, in this country uh, that have a uh, interlinked history with everyone else, but also in some respects, a, a distinctive history. So there's still a very strong presence by the Afro-Cuban uh, religion that is a syncretism between Yoruba traditions and also uh, Catholicism in Cuba. Um, so we learned about that. I will say it was a little bit disappointing that the Casa de Africa Museum looks really underfunded and kind of run down compared to some of these other ones. That was troubling to me, especially compared to something like the Fidel Castro History Museum that has just opened. There's like one museum basically in the country that is about Fidel Castro, but they have clearly spent an enormous amount of money on this uh, just in the last few years since his death. And that's not like surprising, but when you then go to like the Casa de Africa and see that a history of millions of Afro-Cuban peoples, which he cared a lot about and had, you know, fought for uh, in, in his revolution. And at least that's part of the official narrative anyway. Like, I just felt like that was a, a distinction that was a little bit glaring. Uh, did the Castro Museum cover his uh, baseball career? Yes, they had his baseball go. uniform and go. the time that he played uh, baseball against uh, the Venezuelan uh, government team, except that uh, he brought in a ton of ringers who were like really elite level baseball players because he didn't want to lose to Hugo Chavez. Uh, and so he cheated. Okay. <laughs> so that was uh, funny, interesting, a interesting. funny dunk. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, they had his they had his baseball uniform and so forth. Um, yeah, it was interesting. There's really not a, like a ton of Fidel Castro like people obviously mention him, but there's not like a ton of iconography around him um, in Cuba, especially compared to like Jose Marti or Che Guevara. Um, but we did go just to see this new museum, which is like this state of the art museum. Um, but we actually spent most of our time as you were just asking about a moment ago, going to a lot of these, uh, art centers. And some of these were like national galleries that had like pre-revolutionary art and things like that. And just like here are the Cuban traditions and so forth in art. That was in really interesting. Um, but a lot of it was like much more recent, like modern contemporary art, sculpture work, things like that. And we had some kind of discussions about like, 
is this because the government is really supportive of the arts? Uh, in some cases, yes, they have performing arts schools with limited number of spots based on how much they think the job market uh, can support, which is an interesting approach to that. I think that would be controversial with some people, but they view it as important to not oversaturate the market with uh, too many, you know, dancers, singers, violinists, that sort of thing. Um, but there's also very clearly the situation that a lot of people are uh, poor and don't have a lot of opportunities, they would argue, because of the blockade, and that they turn to art because what else is there to do? And that was sort of, I'm not saying that's a definitive position, I'm saying that was like a point of discussion as to whether or not that might be the case uh, that we were talking about within our group. Um, but some of these were really cool venues. A lot of them are organized as co-ops, um, in, often neighborhood collaborations. They kind of, in many cases, try to like keep an eye on the neighborhood youth, engage them, have opportunities for little kids to have activities or like learn dance lessons. Some of them have like, um, you know, senior oriented programming as well. Uh, some of them actually have the seniors come in and work on like recycling stuff into arts and crafts that can then be sold so they can generate a little bit more income to support themselves. So that was sort of an interesting experience. Um, this this Fabrica dell'arte uh, Cuban art factory was was kind of a fascinating space. That was one where I thought, hey, maybe that's something that we could do here in the United States. I'm not sure, but it was basically some of it was made out of shipping containers, but some of it was like a, obviously a converted factory facility. And it was this kind of long labyrinthine winding complex uh, that you would go inside. You'd get this like ticket. You'd go up to the various bar venues inside the space and you would give them the ticket, they would write down how much you had purchased at that location, so you didn't actually have to hand over cash at each specific location, and then at the end, after you had, you know, danced the night away, or watched a performance, maybe a drag show, something like that, or, you know, uh, looked at various photography, and they also actually had studio space in here too, so you could see artists working, you could even buy some of their art, at the end of the night, you would go back to the entrance, and you would get your, you hand in your little ticket thing, pay out there, cash out, and leave the facility and that was uh you know it was kind of like combining like a nightclub space with an arts venue and so forth and uh you know if you could finagle the liquor licenses that's something you could potentially do in the united states um but i i did think it was interesting because in the u.s we talk about how much the impacts of like commercial and residential land rents have on artistic communities uh if artists can't really afford to to hold those spaces they're just not going to have those same opportunities. Um, that's, that's interesting. I also wanted to ask you about the food situation there, where were you, you were eating, and then sort of how the Cuban cuisine you were eating there compares to your the American sort of view or version of Cuban cuisine that we sort of have over here and, you know, you know Cuban sandwiches and stuff like that. Right, I mean, how, right. How different is it? Well, that was an interesting thing that was on my mind the whole time while I was there too. And I don't know that I got a great answer on that because it was very hard for me to tell what was a prepared realistic your, experience, yeah. what was prepared for us specifically, uh, what was an unusual situation or what was something that was a temporary thing because of the blockade or what. So 
uh, I kept on like picking up all of the um, when if there was anything that was in a package, right? Like a like a, a bottle of soda or a, a bottle of water or a bottle of um, you know like a jelly jar or something like that. I would be picking up and looking and like being like, well, is this made in Cuba? Is the you know? And there's no as I said, there's no consumer advertising anywhere. So you're not like seeing, oh, buy such and such product. So there were things that were clearly Spanish products. There were some things that were bottled on the islands. There was a lot of Canadian imports that I noticed and so forth. Um, they do have to import a lot of food. And that's, they did emphasize to us, some of that is blockade uh, affected, but a lot of it's not because it is a low resource island. Some of that is because of resource stripping under the Spanish period. But in general, there was apparently always poor soil quality. So yes, they were growing cash crops like coffee or tobacco or sugar. But for the most part, they were not growing a lot of food crops. They were not um, doing a lot of domestic production. And even if they did have factories that weren't affected by uh, blockades and sanctions rules affecting like machine parts and stuff, they would still have to be importing a lot of raw materials. Maybe they would be able to refine sugar on the island more uh, and like they used to, but they would still have to be importing a lot of food products and so forth. Uh, we noticed that the food did not seem, even at the restaurants, didn't seem particularly spicy. That was interesting. I think Cuban food in the U.S. is quite uh, more on the spicy spectrum. Um, and I wasn't sure if that was because of a shortage of imported spices, because it's not really how it's done there. And that's like a U.S. variant or what? That was an interesting question in my mind. Um, there was a lot of like rice and beans, pork, chicken, uh, beef, things like that. But, you know, kind of having to be careful about how much there was. Um, they eat a lot of fruit. That was something that I don't think I had realized going into it. So you got a lot of like plantains, guava, papaya, pineapples, things like that. Some of that pretty delicious. Some of that I was like, hmm, I don't know about this. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, that was uh, interesting to experience. But yeah, the, the food, um, a little bit on the blander side. And again, was that for us? Was that a general thing? Was that a temporary shortage? Was that just a cultural thing there? Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure on that point. I noticed there's pizza places everywhere now. Um, that was kind of an interesting phenomenon. The pizzas tasted very sweet and they also tended to sell a lot more black market stuff. So like if I went to a real like, um, touristy restaurant, they didn't have like Coca-Cola, but if you went to like a pizza place that was run out of somebody's house, you could get a Coca-Cola. Right. So that's sort of what I wanted to ask about is that from other people that have been to Cuba and I, that I've talked with, there's a lot of these restaurants, which I believe are called Paladares or something like that, which are, it sort of is an underground restaurant that's run out of someone's house and is it, I don't know the degree to what they're, if they're officially sanctioned, but it's a relatively common yeah, setup. Yeah, I think they are. And, and even some of the restaurants that we went to for like big group lunches, as opposed to just like going off on your own time, were, they did function that way. Like often it would be just us as a group in the restaurant and there would be, you know, maybe a few extra tables that were empty or a few random people would have come in. But generally, uh, as far as I could tell... This is the prevailing model outside of the like really, really like big government sponsored tourist hubs, you know, because some of the government hotel, like gov some of the hotels for tourists are actually government owned and stuff like that. And you can't stay in those if you're an American under U.S. rules. Um, but if you're like just kind of going out beyond that, like most restaurants are like basically a small facility operated by a small number of people. Often it's like a family business. And so it's all family members. And I think there's something interesting about that approach that I want to learn more about 
but I had been thinking about this even before I went because I like you I had heard about this ahead of time. I think like one of the challenges we have in the US, obviously the big challenge similar to the arts conversation we just had is when you have really high commercial rents in the US, that can drive all kinds of like small businesses out of business immediately, right? Or prevent them from opening in the first place. Um, that is less of an issue in this case. And especially if you like have, if you own or lease this facility for a long period of time from the government or you own it yourself outright, that is going to change your operating dynamics and so forth. But I think also the, you know, another problem we have in the U S is too many restaurants, right? Relative to the like customer base in the area. And then it's like, oh, we're not making that much money. Okay, well, there's tons and tons of restaurants and everyone with a dream and maybe is a little bit too interested in opening a restaurant. And uh, they, you know, there's too many restaurants, is my point, in the US in some cases. And and you, not everyone's going to be able to yeah, have that dream. just oversaturation. Right. And so... By having this approach of these much smaller restaurants, these kind of hole-in-the-wall places, or a little bit bigger than that in some cases, um, but it's like a very, very small staff, uh, and it's a very small customer base per each one, everyone who like wants to be a restauranter can be if they want to. Now, maybe not everybody, but like a lot more people, and it kind of limits and contains. And then because you have them like every block or whatever, every two blocks, like that also means that everyone can kind of walk to stuff, and you don't have these like concentrated areas like you sometimes get in the u.s where mm -hmm. you're not like near any actual residential population then it's again how do you get those customers there um so yeah that's something that i want to learn more about but i did observe some of those things you were talking about while i was there and sounds like uh of course you did not have any uh rum that was uh, produced there but it sounds like you were describing to me yesterday they still use the term Cuba Libre for their for cocktails and things yeah, like that. Yeah, Cuba Libre instead of a rum and coke, but that's light rum, and I guess it's a Cubato if it's dark rum and coke. Okay. So, um, yeah, that I I did notice there's like certain terminology that both sides, so to speak, use, um, and I think that dates back to the fact that you have this nationalist revolutionary tr uh, tradition going back to like Jose Marti and so forth. Is that people are claiming some of these things like the term a free Cuba or a free Havana. Uh, they're, they're claiming terms like, uh, or they're claiming the flag in both sides, right? Like the, it's a shared flag as opposed to like the exile community having a different traditional like South flag. Vietnamese flag or something. Right. Like that. Or, or like, you know, in Russians, that was a long time thing, right? You'd have like, instead of the Soviet flag, you'd have people with like the Russian flag or China, yeah. you have the ROC flag versus the PRC flag. You don't have that phenomenon in Cuba. And I think that's interesting um, as well. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of some things that I noticed. Is there anything else we want to cover? Uh, no, I mean, I came back through Fort Lauderdale and as a white man elected official had no problem getting back in through customs. My understanding is some other people, maybe if they went through Miami and had a different complexion and background, maybe had some different challenges. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's a Fort Lauderdale versus Miami thing as well. Oh, they um, just let you waltz right through, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, they basically verified that I wasn't carrying uh, enormous amounts of cash or rum or Cuban cigars, and I was not. So it was a pretty easy uh, you didn't, you didn't trip through You didn't take any Havanas, Havanas with you? No, uh, I, I, I sure did not. Um, I think those are more available in the U.S. than they were a little while ago because a friend of mine has some, and 
Yeah, I guess. It, I mean, because it used to be like that was super rare. In order to yeah, wasn't it famously that like when JFK like brought down the hammer with the blockade that he like, he, like cat, yeah, he, he sent he, out his staff to go yeah, get yeah, as many sure, Cuban yeah, cigars exactly. as possible for him? Yeah. That's Come funny. on, man. That's, that's, that's a funny one. Uh, all right. Well, you know, again, I, I could I could talk about this for you know even longer, and I'll probably circle back on some of this stuff. Yeah, with, it sounds like with we Rachel. have more. Yeah, there more there's stuff like to... um, for example, you know, I can talk on another episode about the upcoming code of the families. I might wait until we see how the referendum turns out later in September. That's a big national referendum coming up on the family law changes. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, we we heard some other healthcare points around like. Uh, transgender healthcare and things like that, and just social relations in general. Um, some of those were some really interesting discussions. Uh, and I'm still like digesting and processing this. I've been home for less than a week as we're recording this, so I'm like still kind of mulling over the things that I saw. It's a, it's definitely a really interesting experiment, and a lot of people are still very very committed to this idea. I think some of the younger people maybe are not as committed to it, and the conditions are undeniably very hard right now but also it's just really hard under the blockade in general um hard to see if it's going to get better but lifting the blockade would certainly ease a lot of people's lives and suffering and and just you know see see where things go um i think it's an interesting open question and always has been since the end of the soviet union and now especially with the end of fidel and his sort of personal force of vision um and character like does this project continue without that help from abroad? Does this project continue without Fidel Castro? That's an interesting question, but that's one that the Cuban people alone should be sorting out themselves rather than with interference by the U.S. government. And I think that there is fundamentally something absurd and preposterous about imposing a blockade that is conditionally only lifted under the current law in the event of multi-party elections being called in Cuba. Like... That is not a choice, right? If you are telling another country that this economic siege you have laid on them can be lifted by them choosing one specific thing you want them to choose, that is not a democratic choice. If they want to do something else in the absence of a blockade, they will be able to do that. I can definitely talk on another episode about the way that the committees for the defense of the revolution work and like generally how like participatory government governance works in Cuba and that there's a different model that, again, a lot of that is not like a Soviet communist model. A lot of that actually comes out of Latin American and Spanish traditions around like anarcho-syndicalist trade unionism and things like that. That's not how it ended up necessarily being crystallized eventually, but there are certain aspects of that that you can see clearly come out of those traditions. There are ways of participatory governance and making your voice heard. It is not an, you know iron totalitarian regime and to the extent that there are elements of that i think again you have to look at the aspects of that that are responding to the undeclared u.s war and the embargo uh, the blockade uh there's also elements of it that you could criticize cuba for but only if you were also going to criticize the u.s for those exact same things because the u.s has certainly got its problems with dem uh sort of democratic processes and and true democratic representation um so there was, there's a lot of things that I'm kind of digesting, but I just think like it is fundamentally absurd, especially after decades and decades and decades of this to say, we are not only continuing the blockade, but this is a choice that we are going to force you to make because you currently don't have choices. So you have to choose 
to embrace these choices, but only the choice that we want you to choose. Like that does not actually compute. That is not democratic. That is forcing the agenda of a very specific constituency in the United States and a few very powerful other people that are aligned with them, you know, going back to the Dulles brothers being invested in the United Fruit Company and stuff like that, right? Like there's that long tradition there. Being the lawyers to the United Fruit Company, basically. Yes, well, uh, both. And then, yeah. yeah, running State Department policy and the CIA, like, come on, there's, yeah. there's, there is this we, we, long We know how there, that yeah, works. So. Uh, and yeah, I would encourage people like the podcast that I listened to on my way down there. And while I was there was the season two of blowback. That's I'm sure most of our listeners have at least heard of it. But if you haven't had a chance, go listen to that. That was helpful for like giving me a lot of like contextual things and like dates and stuff. While yeah, I was their, there. their series on Cuba is great. And plus they have some supplemental uh, interviews and stuff with uh, uh, Cuban historians and, and other other people who have a lot of really, really good insights. So definitely check that out as well. Right. And again, like. On this trip, I wasn't, like, talking to, you know, like, government officials or party leaders or anything like that, certainly. You weren't being indoctrinated. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I wasn't going through the, the George Romney brainwashing tour. Um, but, like, yeah, the people that we did talk to were pretty open about, like, here's what we like. Here's what's working. Here's what we're proud of. Here's what we don't like. Here's what's not working. Here's what we'd like to see changed and so forth. People were open about that. And there is that level of, like, expression that you know, people feel relatively comfortable with, I think. So, you know, and I certainly like heard from a taxi driver who was completely anti-government. I'm not going to like take everything that he said without a grain of salt, but like I did hear from people expressing various different perspectives. You had your Thomas Friedman moment. I sure taxi. did. I sure did. Uh, all right. Well, Nate, thanks so much for coming on to talk to me about this. Uh, you know, just a fascinating trip. Uh, if other people have an opportunity to go down legally with the, you know, proper approvals, um, and I would encourage you to go on a delegation type trip. Although, again, be careful about researching which type of delegations you're going with, because some of them, they just go and like only meet with dissidents or they go and meet and talk about like how they need to do market liberalization or whatever. And this was not really focused. As I said, the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective trip was not focused on, oh, you know, we need to have a specific policy outcome in Cuba that would make it better, except we need to end the U.S. Uh, undeclared war and blockade, and then it's a Cuban matter from from there. Uh, and I think that's a, a valuable message. So, uh, all right, well, that's going to be it for my bonus episode today uh, here at Arsenal for Democracy. We'll be back soon with uh, more. Uh, as I said, we'll probably circle back to this at some point, but we'll also be back into the regular episode soon. But I just wanted to kind of update listeners on that. Uh, since I hadn't really said where I was going to be going and I wanted to let people know. So thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with more.